This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. Out of the nearly 60 million elementary and secondary school students in the United States, less than 1 million receive school vouchers or tax credits. Yet with the appointment of a school voucher supporter, Betsy DeVos, as U.S. Secretary of Education, vouchers remain one of the most absorbing political issues of our day. For decades, scholars have estimated the impact of vouchers on parent satisfaction with the school and student test score performance. But recently, scholars are looking to the long-term outcome, such as college enrollment or college graduation rates. One of the pioneers in the study of long-term outcomes is Matthew Chingos, director of the Education Policy Program at the Urban Institute. Matt will be presenting his findings at the Harvard Kennedy School on April 19th at a conference sponsored by the Harvard Program on Education Policy and Governance. And some of his studies have just recently been released, so I'm particularly delighted to have today with me Matthew Chingus from the Urban Institute. Matt, welcome to the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. So Matt, what are the key findings from your three major studies, one in Florida, one in Milwaukee, one in D.C.? What are the key findings? So the first study of the Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program, it's the largest voucher-type program uh, in the country. Uh, we took a look at the outcomes of about 10,000 students that participated in that program between, beginning between 2004 and 2010, and we compared them to a matched set of students in the public schools who had similar test scores you know, before they entered the scholarship program, similar demographics, same school, same grade. And what we found is that the kids who were in the tax credit scholarship program were more likely to go on to college. But almost all of that effect was at two-year colleges. So not much of an effect on who goes to a four-year university in Florida, but uh, about a six percentage point or 15 percent increase in the enrollment rate at two-year colleges. Um, but we didn't find that much of an effect on uh, attainment, on getting a degree from a two-year college. None of these kids, not enough of these kids were old enough to look at bachelor's degree attainment, which is, I think, more of a signal of likely success in the labor market than a two-year degree. Um, so still a bit of an open question there. And then we also found that for kids who participate in the program for a greater number of years, there appeared to be a larger effect. So kids who participate only one year, there was almost no effect. But kids who participated for three, four, or more years saw a quite sizable effect. So that's Florida. Um, Milwaukee was also a positive effect. It was a similar study design uh, comparing kids who were in the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program to a matched set of kids with similar baseline test scores and demographics in the Milwaukee public schools. Um, positive effect on, on college enrollment. Not much of an effect on a, a degree attainment from either two or four-year colleges. And those kids, uh, some of them at least, were enrolled enough to look at that. But one key difference is that in Florida, most of the effect was on enrollment at two-year colleges. But in Milwaukee, most of the effect was on enrollment at four-year colleges. Um, and then that brings us to D.C. Um, the big, one big difference in D.C. is that it was done by random lottery. Uh, the upside of that is that you can pretty much rule out the, the possibility that the families who participated in the choice program were more motivated or, or less motivated or less motivated or that the kids were struggling more in the in the public schools before they left which might bias the effects upward or or downward that's the the advantage the disadvantage is it's not a clean comparison of participants and non-participants because some kids who get offered a scholarship don't use it and in DC a lot of those kids went to charter schools which is another form of choice but it's choice in the public school system so what, what I found in DC is that the kids who won the lottery went to college, two-year college, four-year college, any kind of college we looked at, 
at similar rates to kids who, who um, participated in the lottery, were equally interested, but, but weren't offered the opportunity. So the findings differ from one place to another. Um, could, and, and some signs is that, you know, they, they go to college, but they don't finish college. Um, do you think you've looked long, waited long enough to do your study? Because what if you wait another three, four, five years and look back at this again? Do you think your results could change or has enough time elapsed to be sure that everybody's finishing college if they're ever going to finish college? I think it's, it's definitely too soon to look at college graduation for a lot of these kids in these studies. In, in D.C., almost no one's old enough to look at college graduation yet. In Florida, most kids aren't old enough to look at four-year college completion, really just, just two-year, and a lot of people start at two-year. Florida's the kind of state, it's sort of a two-plus-two model, where even if you're going to get a four-year degree, a lot of people still start at a two-year college, but that tends to kind of slow you down to get towards your four-year degree. Um, in Milwaukee, a lot of the kids aren't old enough yet, so I think you know, of course, the final word is earnings over your lifetime and your happiness at age 80. But I think college uh, completion is a much more kind of important long-term outcome because enrollment is, you know, you get a kid to fill out an aid form, get them into college. Yeah, that's that's a success. I think we ought to count that as a success. But really, the hope is that they're going to complete a degree so that, you know, maybe they take out a loan, but they have the earnings that come with a degree to pay it off. The concern is if you get into college but don't finish, maybe you have the debt but no degree. So one of the conclusions that you would draw is that it's too soon to draw final conclusions on any of these studies because things could change in the next few years as kids finally have sufficient time to, with all the delays that take place, for low-income people to complete a college degree for that time to pass and see whether uh, the impact is there. Well, that's true, but it's always true that it's too soon to draw final conclusions, right? It's always a temporary conclusion until you get more data. And really, the trade-off you're facing here is between wanting to have data that are recent and wanting to have data that are long-term enough to be, to be meaningful. So the problem is we've already waited quite a long time, and yeah, we'd like to see completion, but these conclusions are already dated. Right? I mean, in Milwaukee, it was kids who were in the program in 2006. In D.C., it was kids who applied in 2004 and 2005. So the problem is the longer you wait for better data, the more they apply to an older version of the program, an older version of the counterfactual public school system, that it's reasonable to say, sure, this is, these are the important outcomes, but uh, do they matter today? Do they reflect what the program is doing today? Well, the other element that could be methodological uh, would be the fact that you did a random assignment study in D.C. and you did the matched comparisons, and you mentioned this in your opening discussion. Uh, do you think that those matched comparisons may be giving an overestimate of the effects of the voucher program? It's certainly possible. I mean, we have, I think, pretty good evidence from research on charter schools finding that at least for looking at value added on test scores from one year to the next, the matched comparisons, you know, the value added type model seem to do pretty well, even when you have a experimental, a randomization based benchmark to compare them to. But we don't have evidence yet for that on private school choice and for these longer term outcomes. So it could be that if you can match on the prior year test score, the impacts on test scores are pretty well estimated. But that there's something about the motivation of families that's not going to get fully picked up by the, the kids' entry test scores but that is going to show up um, in the long-term outcomes. And maybe there's something about private school choice. There's something about that choice being more, uh, more radical than going to another public school that happens to be a, be a public charter school. 
So I think that's one set of methodological considerations. Another one is around the randomization. And so one explanation is, you know, these programs, they all have zero effects and DC gives you the truth, but the matched comparison ones are, are, are biased. I mean, that's possible, but there's just so many other differences. You know, the DC program is a different program. And I, as I think I alluded to before, uh, the DC control group and the treatment group too, to some degree, have a lot of kids going to charter schools. So in DC, it's not so much the effect of pri private schooling per se, it's the effect of the private school voucher program layered on top of a system of public school choice. You know, a city where at the time of the study it was probably 30 some odd percent of kids in charter schools, and now it's, I think, about 45% of kids in charter schools. So, yeah, you would expect to see different results in D.C. Than, than in the other places. But now you have the tax credit program in Florida, which seems maybe you get the best effects or the most positive effects for the choice system in Florida. Is that, would you reach that conclusion? I would say Florida and Milwaukee you know, both have positive effects. If you think that four-year you know, four enrollments more likely to lead to a four-year degree, which is more likely to lead to labor market success, you might say the Milwaukee effects were, were more positive. I mean, Florida's a more robust sample. It's a much bigger, bigger program. So if you think about numbers of kids induced into college, you know, a statewide program in a state like Florida, you might call more successful than Milwaukee. But it hinges on, do you think that that increase in enrollment at two-year colleges without any signs of, or that much of a sign in the way of a two-year degree increase, whether that's positive or whether it's sort of too soon to tell. Well, would you say that uh, there's no clear evidence that the tax credit model is obviously a superior model to the school voucher model? I mean, they are different models. School vouchers, the money goes to the school, uh, and the tax credit model, the foundation gives a scholarship to the family, and the government is less in directly involved. So they are slightly different models. So do you see any evidence to prefer one over the other? I don't think so. I mean, on one hand, you can't say too much about program design based on three studies, because it's basically three, three data points, and there's lots of things. You know, some are cities, one's a state. Um, you know, two are voucher programs, one's a tax credit program. I'm sure they differ in other ways around which students are eligible, which which schools um, are are eligible. I'm not sure I would ever expect the financing model on its own to matter that much. From the perspective of the student, I'm not sure they care whether it's a check from the government or a check from a private individual or corporation that was reimbursed by a check from the government. You know, they don't see that. Well, but it might affect the the participation rate from the private sector you might get schools willing to participate in a tax credit program that are not willing to participate in a voucher program. Is that possible? Yeah, it's possible. So, right, so where I was going to go is I see it less about the, fi the pure financing per se, but more other issues around who participates, how's the program regulated, and that might be related to the financing mechanism. So there could be some downstream effects of that, but I would sort of tend to think about those on their own. So is a kind of a more versus less regulated program, I mean, that's probably too simplistic of a way to think about it. But the rules that are placed on which schools can participate seem pretty important. On one hand, it's sort of a balance you're trying to strike between you don't want the fly-by-night actors who are just ripping off taxpayers and taking advantage of students. You don't want them in. But if you enact strong regulations to keep them out, you might keep out innovative good actors that want to get in, but are kept out by rules, maybe supported by the, you know, the establishment whether it's the public or private sector, but people who don't want, want new actors. So that's really the trade-off they're trying to strike, and I think that's really one area where 
future research rather than looking at different programs could look within a program. And we did a little bit of this in Florida. For example, we found that uh, at schools, private schools, where fewer kids were on scholarships, the positive effects on college enrollment were stronger. Whereas at schools where lots of kids were on scholarships, the effects on college enrollment, they weren't negative, but they were smaller. They were, they were closer, closer. So you're making zero. a case for an integrated experience that kids from low-income backgrounds should be going to school with kids that are coming from middle-income families. So that's one version of the story. Another version of the story is the schools that existed independently. The schools where people are willing to pay some of their own money to go to, where there's some families who can pay, do pay, that those are just better schools than the schools that only exist because they take vouchers. It doesn't mean a school can't only exist that takes vouchers and can't be a good school. It just means for the period we're looking at, the better effects were from the places, the kind of established existing places where not every kid was on a voucher. Well, do the pres does the presence of voucher kids or tax credit kids drive out the students who are paying? So are you, can you sustain a voucher program where half the kids are on vouchers and half the kids are not on vouchers? Is that a sustainable model over the long run? It's a good question. I'm not sure it's one we have a whole lot of evidence to answer. We've certainly seen and I've taken a look at the Florida data and how it's evolved since the period when I was evaluating the program to more recent years, which are too soon to look at college outcomes, but we can just see enrollment. And what you see is that the share of kids, voucher, of tax credit scholarship kids, going to schools where the majority of kids are on the scholarships is a lot higher than it used to be, which is what you'd expect in an expanding program. The question is about the, the quality of those schools, and that's, that's an open question. I'm sure some are good and some are bad, and it's a question of what's, what's the, the mix of those. Yeah. So how about the, fine, the amount of money? I mean, people talk about this all the time. There's not a, vouchers are too small, they're insufficient. What's, do you have any observations on that from the experiences in these three places? That's a question I can't speak to all that well. I mean, in, in D.C., it's a small program. Um, I'm not sure the amount of the voucher covers tuition at a lot of places. But it's, you know, the scholarships get used up pretty much every year because there aren't that many of them. Um, Florida, I believe, has increased the amount over time, but I, I think it's still less. You know, in most of these places, the amount that comes through the voucher is less than certainly what's spent in the public school system and in some cases what's less than tuition in a lot of private schools. Something you have to keep in mind is kind of the productivity way of thinking about this. You know, in D.C., for example, where there was no difference in the college enrollment rates, it's still the case that the public school system is spending 20 or 30 grand a kid, um, and the voucher is something like eight or $10,000, and the private schools, maybe they're spending a little more than that in some cases with private money or church money or, or what have you. Um, but it, generally, I think it's the case, no matter what adjustments you make, there's still going to be a, a, a greater spending in the public sector. Well, you know, in the study that you and I did in New York City, which was one of the first to look at the long-term effects of, uh, of, of vouchers, we found big differences by ethnic group. Uh, we found that the benefits really were concentrated in the African-American uh, student population. Uh, did you look for that in these uh, three cities? Did you find any pattern like that? So we took a look at that in two of the studies. In, in Washington, D.C., we, we, we looked and didn't find much difference across groups, although most D.C. students are, are African-American, uh, low-income D.C. students who are, who are in the study, so they wouldn't have really expected to find much. In Florida, we also took a look across different ethnic groups, you know, black, Hispanic, white, and, and my recollection is we didn't find huge patterns of heterogeneity, pretty much. These benefits were, were similar, similar across the board. 
Well, stepping back a bit and comparing your work on vouchers to a lot of work out there on, on charter schools. There's, I would say there's more research on charter schools than there is on vouchers um, as of today. Um, is the evidence that the charter school model works stronger than the evidence for vouchers? That's a tough question. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So the silence is reflecting me uh, kind of <laughs> thinking about it and mulling it over. I think you're right that we do have more research on charter schools. We especially have more research on charter schools on the test score side of things because, because charter schools are public schools. They're, they're in the same testing and accountability systems. In a lot of cases, the charter schools are, you know, their goals are the same standards. So the, using the state test makes sense to compare a charter school and a district school. Um, and, you know, we have evidence that I think on average the value added at charter schools is similar, maybe a little better in some places, but lots of variation, more variation in the charter sector, examples of parts of the charter sector, you know, such as the no excuses schools that are, that are really shooting out the lights. I would say private school voucher research is just much more early stage, you know, the, uh, you know, we don't have some set of private schools that everyone holds up the way they hold up the no, the no excuses charter schools. And it doesn't mean that they don't exist. It just means they don't exist at a scale and haven't been subject to evaluation where we'd have that evidence um, to hold up. Um, on the long run outcomes, we don't have quite as much evidence on charters as we do on long term outcomes as we do on doing test scores. Certainly some examples of, I think, some research from, I believe, Chicago and Florida finding effects, positive effects on college enrollment. Yeah, but negative um, effects in Texas, I think, is the uh, Okay. A recent study um, showing. But yeah. some instances of high school, you know, I think the study I'm thinking of is one where there wasn't much of an effect on test scores in high school, but there was a positive effect on, on college going. Um, so I think really the, the fundamental question is, can we come up with some short-term outcomes that do a better job of predicting long-run long outcomes? Because as I said before, we're never going to want to wait 20 years to find out whether what we're doing today works. You know, we, we need to make decisions, you know, tomorrow about what to do next school year. Um, and yeah, we, 10 years from now, it'll be good to look back and know whether we made the right decision or not. But I think the, the better we can come up with short-term outcomes that we're more and more confident are predictive of the long-run outcomes, well, then we can make better decisions today. But the one thing we find from every study is that parents like choice. If they choose their school, they're happier with it. Private schools, parents say they're much more satisfied if they send their kids to a, a private school. If they get a voucher, they're much more satisfied than if they lose a voucher in, in the lottery. The same is true for charter schools, though not to quite the same extent. Private schools produce the highest level satisfaction, charters the second level, district schools that, to which you're assigned the least satisfaction. So why can't we just use parent satisfaction as a measure of quality? My view is we should hold these programs to sort of a do no harm type principle. If the parents like it and the outcomes on average are the same or better, uh, it's, it's hard to object to that. Um, I think recently there's been some concerns coming at us, to, you know, results from places like Louisiana and Indiana, Ohio, the new evaluation of the D.C. program, which is one year of test scores, or at least in the short term, there's been some negative impacts on test scores. Now, in a lot of cases, those do tend to fade out after a couple of years. We don't yet have long-run studies looking at college enrollment, college graduation from places that had negative impacts on test scores. So that all goes away. Um, then, that's, then I think that's fine. So one way that the voucher movement could be cheered by your findings is you've shown that in the long run, in none of these places, are vouchers doing harm. So 
if parents want to send their kids to one school rather than another, why not? Yeah, I mean that's that's certainly one way uh, one way to think about it. Um, I mean, I think the other other concern people bring out bring up is you know what's the effect on everybody of of where kids of where kids go to school. You know, the proverbial kids left behind in the public schools. And so far, all the evidence we have is you know neutral or positive. You know that we have evidence in some cases that the competition induced from these programs in places like Florida has improved outcomes in, in the public schools. So I think that's something we'd want to continue to look at and learn more about, you know, as kids move around across schools and policies create options for more choice than the kind of existing system provides, you know, what happens both in the public and private sectors. But as long as we're finding evidence that everyone's at least as well off, um, it's hard uh, to get too excited about these being a problem. Well, thank you, uh, Matt, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I've been speaking with Matthew Chingos, Director of the Education Policy Program at the Urban Institute, an early pioneer in the study of the long-term impact of school choice. He will be presenting his findings at a conference at the Harvard Kennedy School. On this topic, on April 19th, you should contact the Harvard uh, program on education policy and governance for more information. This is the Education Exchange. Thank you, Matthew, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me every Monday at noon when the Education Exchange podcast is released. You can obtain uh, access to the podcast on Education Next or on uh, iTunes or many other outlets. Thank you.